Okay, may I start? Okay, thank you. Any questions or comments from all of the um, conversations we've been having in the last few weeks? Nope. Oh, good. <laughs> no, come on. No, you can hog the class. Okay. <clears throat> no, I hog the class. <laughs> I was reading in the Hindu way of awakening uh-huh. yesterday, and it, it applies. Master was talking about how Swami was talking about how Master trained him to. He said that our relationship with God, Divine Mother, and the Guru needs to be on a soul level right. rather than personality and things like that, I guess. But I don't know what that feels like. I know, you know, what it's, I, I, uh, you know, you find yourself being kind of um, intimate and feeling really like you can talk to God about anything and, you know, you share everything. But I don't, I'm not sure that's on a soul level. It's a progressive thing, I suppose. Well, to huh? begin with, of course, he's speaking of the possibility of having a relationship with the guru who's in his body. So the first distinction that he's making is that even if the guru is there in front of you and is physically present, that your primary relationship with him is not um, through his personality and the things that he says, but through a much deeper connection. Um, So that's the first distinction that that if you think about, because in as much as the master that we're following, and now even with Swamiji gone, we don't have any um, incarnated... um, uh, beings guiding us at the moment. So every connection that we have with them has got to be uh, of a certainly of a non-material, and we don't really have a personality anymore to respond to. We have a, with, in the case of Swami, we have a strong memory of a personality, but we don't, we can't respond to it. Although you know some of the little experiences I've had with him since he passed, the personality is intact exactly as it was. The responses are reflective of the way his nature was, but when we're talking about relating from a soul level, I think you're trying to make it more mysterious than it is. Um, it's, it's not about um, sharing on a trivial level. It's that the whole nature of the experience is that you're trying to um, make a connection that has to do with uplifting your spirit. Um, if, if Swamiji were here, if Master were still here, I mean, people... I've seen Swamiji in settings where when he would be perhaps with someone's relatives or with friends or acquaintances of his that were not primarily drawn to him for spiritual reasons, they would relate to him on the personality level. They would tell them about their lives and they would chat with him about events and, and he would just relate to them on that level and it would never shift over into the kind of spiritual teaching he could give. Or else he would... He wouldn't actually withdraw, but when nothing was being asked of him, he felt no necessity to push anything. So if he's with people who make it clear that they don't want what he has to give, he just quietly sits within himself. And that's what it is to relate to him on the personality level, is to not understand um, what the purpose of the relationship is. And it's harder to make that mistake if nobody's here because the only time you really ever do think of them is when you're in an inward state. There's no outward relationship to have. And then we just have to work 
as deeply as possible to be as elevated as we can in, in our expectations and in our relationship. But this is the same conversation we have on oh, many times, and we've been, this is what everything is about. You start where you are, and you try to expand from there. Okay, does that help? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't be anxious about it, not at this stage and in this reality. We've just not given... Swami gave us no chance to relate to him on the personality level, and Master, we never knew. Swamiji said to us once that we think we would like it better to be with Master if we could have incarnated with him, but in many ways it's easier never to have incarnated with him because Swamiji talked about just the incredible confusion of the fact that he was present, having meetings, cooking curry, you know, serving tea, um, having conversations, driving in his car, and yet he was omnipresent, and he was none of those things. So there was this kind of um, confusion, is the word he was, that's what I said, in his mind about who he really was, which we're not troubled by, because we have no example except the one that we feel intuitively. With Swamiji, it's more. Um, but even that, yeah, people talk about his personality. They like this, they don't like that. People are always parsing him apart, you know, which, you know, they're perfectly free to do now that he's not in the body to present that contradictory reality. I've been reading Autobiography of a Yogi, and Master says in several places that, you know, Sri Yukteswar was not at all predictable or consistent and how uh, Master had to rise to meet him and did not always know what, you know, what he was dealing with. So, all right. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Arthur. Last week when we were talking about how time is a delusion, I thought there was a comparison between what you had talked about, about teaching in different cities, Uh how you'd sort of tune out after leaving one city and then when you went back, you'd sort of fall back into the thread. Right. And comparing that to um, Swami's experience that he talked about, about going into superconscious as a child, mm-hmm. superconsciousness as a child and an adult, mm-hmm. there's that sort of return. Um, I think there is a shadow of relationship. But, but, but if there is a shadow of relationship um, as above, so below. And that's what sort of we were talking about. Even though that the when Tom asked that question about time, and I was realizing that the more we live in the now, the less time exists, that even though that's hardly the superconscious state of timelessness, that's the direction toward it. And exactly what you say is true, and that's why I brought up that story at that time. When I was back in it, I was back there, and no time had passed. When I was back into the class, I could, I could remember it vividly when I was standing in it again. I couldn't when I wasn't, but I could when I was, because it was all happening again right in that situation. So yeah, it is more parallel than, um, than you might think at first glance. What, what that's emphasizing, which is the most important point to emphasize, is that we have to do whatever we have to do at the highest level that we can do it. And that, for us, is the answer. I mean, that... We might not have perfect timelessness, but if we, if we live at the highest level that we can live at, for us that's perfection because no more than that is possible for us yet. And if we're always living at that front edge of the possible for ourselves, then pretty soon that edge expands and it develops excessive 
self-preoccupation to stand at the front edge of where we actually stand and look to there and imagine that that's where we, quote, should be. It just, uh, that's when we get caught in time. I talked about that extensively last week, but this is the same, same basic thought. It's a very interesting. I'm very glad you asked that question, as I said last week, because I learned a lot from having to answer that. It gave me a, a much broader perspective. So, hope it helped others. Entertained me. I hope it helped you. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts before we plunge ahead? Okay. Um, We've been sort of picking up some of them here and there, but we're going to start with 124. Um, We have already done much of 126, but we'll just, we're going to kind of fill in all the blanks on these pages. 124 says, Ishwara is the supreme self unaffected by any affliction, karma, action, consequences thereof, or impression of desires. And then Swami explains, this is the state of consciousness of the Supreme. We should try to maintain our own consciousness as high, therefore, as possible. When afflictions come, we should accept them and not think of them as affecting ourselves. Moreover, we should not even see them as afflictions. So this is the same theme, because Patanjali plays the same themes out a lot, and we need the same themes played out. Okay, where we are trying to get is Ishwara, the Supreme Self. And the characteristic of Ishwara, or being in that state of consciousness, is he's unaffected by anything that happens. He's not affected by action or its consequences, by any seemingly unpleasant thing, and he doesn't have any impression of desires. In other words, the inclination toward the desires which have left, uh, um, well, an inclination on our part to go in a certain way. So Swami just says, we should try to maintain our own consciousness as high as possible. And this was what I was anticipating when I was answering your question, Tom. When afflictions come, we should accept them and not think of them as affecting ourselves. Moreover, we should not try to see them as afflictions. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting to read it. And then it's so startling when we realize all of a sudden that we're in the middle of one, isn't it? But even to just ever study this and realize that, you know, the spiritual path of self-realization is so extremely radical and it's so far away from psychological good health. You know, psychological good health which is a, a necessary stage on the spiritual path, and you can't really um, abandon your ego if you don't know how to function in it. You have to sort of function in it first, and then you can transcend it. So I'm not saying that directionally some of that isn't good. But so much of what we're trained about is how we affirm and stand up for ourselves and do the right thing, and we can't be afraid of that level of reality. We can't come to the spiritual path in the hope of being able to skip um, psychological health. Sometimes people try to do that. They don't know they're trying to do it, but they're basically, um, some part of them is afflicted, or, or afflicted in the sense of it doesn't function properly, and they think they can just kind of go around the whole middle and then just go directly to the point where we surrender. But... What we're talking about here in Patanjali is, is simply knowing 
that yes, this is a very difficult situation. Yes, my husband has died. My wife has left me. Um, we hope to have children, and we're not going to be able to have children. The business has gone bankrupt. Um, whatever my ambitions in life, it's quite clear that I'm never going to achieve the level of success that I hope to have. I mean, these are not small issues, and they're not things that can just be brushed aside very easily. You know, I'm married to the wrong person, and now we have children, and we're just going to have to stick it out for the next 24 years. These are not like things that you can just laugh off. But the question is, we have to decide what is the nature of affliction, what, what is being hurt from the perspective of the Supreme, of Ishwara. These are just things that are rolling along. And this is where he gives us this clue. We have to get over the idea that... Um, and not think of them as affecting ourselves. I mean, that's just such a, a fascinating way to look at, look at it. I remember once I was at Ananda Village and we went down to the Yuba River and we were on the, the rocks at the Yuba River. And we'd been studying the chakras that week and we were sort of on the rocks thinking about the earth um, element, the, 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 the power of the first chakra. But I recall lying on the back, on my back on the rock and looking, it was the canyon was pretty narrow there, and looking way up and seeing probably a hawk that was circling up above. And I just had this sudden um, attunement with the hawk, not so much as an animal, but just being with the perspective that he had on my situation. And so while still being completely identified and defined by myself lying out on the rock, I, I was simultaneously conscious of how my life appeared to the hawk and how detached he could be from my life. And, and there was a moment when I realized, oh, I could be that detached from my life. I, I just don't have to have this deep involvement with the things that are happening. And I could, as if, view it from the perspective of some, uh, something floating above me. And so we, we need to find within ourselves, and this is not dis- dissociation and all of the other psychologically unhealthy things. This is true transcendence. This is a fearless and willing and honest acceptance. I think, was it here at last week when I was talking about someone trying to say that something was okay by telling herself an untruth about it, pretending that everybody had behaved perfectly when really, in fact, many people had behaved very badly. And that Swami said you can't become detached just by blinding yourself to the facts of the situation. You know, there's intense suffering, deep disappointment, your own deep disappointment. But what Swamiji says is don't define it as an affliction. You can call it exactly what it is. I'm deeply disappointed. This incarnation has simply not turned out in the way I expected. I'm going to have to recreate myself on on an entirely different basis than the one that I thought I was going to have to uh, live on. I'm, I'm impoverished now. I'm alone and I thought I would have a family. Just whatever it might be. I used to be strong and young and now I'm sick. Whatever the situations are, call it what it is but don't define it as an affliction. You see the difference? And the two, the two ways you do that is by 
simply getting another perspective. I've been using this in, in a way that's almost, to my mind, comically simplistic, which is just when I feel tension or anxiety building up within me, I just do the obvious thing. I step back. And I try to just go into that part of myself, which is always going to be there after this temporary situation is gone. Just the realization that these things just come and go. I think it's a factor of age, partly. It's like I could get all upset and wound up in this, but in a a relatively short period of time, it's going to resolve itself one way or another, either in further disaster or in not in further disaster. But if I can just step back that little bit, nothing changes, it still rolls along, I still have to be involved in it, but I'm not identified with it. And it's not necessarily an affliction. It's just the next thing that has to be dealt with. And everything changes. And Swamiji challenges us, you know, if you're in court, if you're slandered by your friends, if people betray you, whatever it might be, don't think that there's anything that really has the power to take away from you your peace. And then further he says, even when desires come to me, say, it's not I who has, have the desire, as he puts it, it is merely the power of delusion acting through me. I love that. You know, we're um, just, here we are, and we're made a certain way, and we have these certain samskars, and every so often that force um, takes us over. And we don't have to identify with it. We might be in the throes of it, um, whether the throes of it manifest as a, a drinking binge when you swore you wouldn't, or a... a, a an impulsively dishonest act when greed overcomes you or just a a continuous laziness and not really taking care of business but always looking for an easy way out, whatever it might be, it's a a force. And we get caught up in that force. If, If you're swimming in a river, I'm sure some of you have had this experience, swimming in a river or getting caught in an undertow in the ocean. You know, these things are not small experiences when they happen. All of a sudden it's taking you somewhere that you didn't want, particularly want to go, but you're getting swept along in it because you were inattentive or foolish and you got caught by it. And so there you go. But you don't think of it as yourself, do you? You've gotten caught in it and it's taking you. And you're going to have to struggle to get yourself back. But it came upon you. And really in the same way, when any de- de- delusive thought comes to us, and it's, it's very interesting because we all make just terrible mistakes. I was in a conversation with someone not too long ago and they brought up a certain point and it seemed like a good idea to me to bring up a contrary point. Why I thought that was a good idea, I really have no idea. But at the time, it's, all I can say is it seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was gasoline on the fire. It was just like completely the wrong thing to do. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. It's like the, the, and standing back from it, you know, it was like, of course I shouldn't have done that. That was not at all the right response. But in the moment, there was a force that took me like that. And when you constantly try to turn your mind impersonally like that, it doesn't always work at first. In fact, it rarely works at first. But if you just keep bringing it back, or even if after all the fireworks are over and everything calms down, you just look at it and you think, well, something blinded me. I, I told you a long story of you know, causing a lot of trouble for some friends recently, and I was completely 
completely oblivious the whole time. That was, that was even way weirder. It was just like some other force just took me somewhere that I would never have gone willingly or consciously, but there was just a blindness over my eyes. In that case, I think I was acting for God, so that's not really a very good example. In the first example, it was just more like some scars just hit. So even when desires arise... And those desires are come in many forms. It's not that you just have a desire to go out and do something. Sometimes you have a desire to defend yourself or a desire to explain yourself or all kinds of desires. A desire not to do the work, a desire to resist God's will. Think of it like a riptide. That you were just swimming on the very nice beach and you got pulled in by a riptide. And as soon as you realize that you're in a riptide, you have to find a calm space and try to get out of it. But you can uh, feel the difference between choosing to go somewhere and being dragged there because our true nature is the Supreme Self and the Supreme Self is completely unaffected by afflictions, by karma. How does he put it exactly? He says, unaffected by any affliction, any action or the consequences thereof and any impression of desires. Um, he just says we are children of God, and I love this, and should conduct our lives in the consciousness of that, even if still for the present we are steeped in delusion. The worst sin, Master said, is to call yourself a sinner. That's, those are really deep teachings. And, and whenever we, we begin to identify with the errors that we've made, we have to remember, no, that's the worst thing I can do. And we don't use the word sinner, but when you identify with the riptides that have pulled you off of your intention, um, that's the same as calling yourself a sinner. And see, that's, you see how that's the honest balance? Oh, yeah, I got caught in that riptide. You don't say, oh, not me, I'm always oblivious to them, I keep my mind straight at all times. You know, I didn't really say that. You know, you, I only said that because you made me say that, and, you know, and it wasn't really my fault. No, no, none of that. I got caught in a riptide. But that's very different and saying, I'm a bad person, I always do these things, why do I always do these things, I know better, and then still I repeat it. Just keep it calmer than that. Whoops, I was swimming out toward that raft, and I got caught in a riptide. I was going forward to be a good friend, and I got caught in the riptide. I was resolved to be a noble, upright person, and I got caught in the riptide. And then I have to swim all the way back. But just keep swimming back. That's the great secret here. Okay, and also you see, what Patanjali is telling us is, this is the highest state of consciousness. Identify with that. That's, this is the Patanjali that we're also enamored of. There's no, there's no, he doesn't bother to tell you to take small steps. This is where it is, this is where you go. Swami gives us a little more wiggle room in there, but there's that power that we don't want to resist in this book, where he is so unequivocal in his demands of us. Yeah, he was quite a guy, really, when you think about it. Yeah, he must have been really something. Okay. And then, is there any question about what I just said before I go on? Yes, there are several. Okay, let's get the microphone. Uh, There's a sentence in here that I really like that I can identify with. Well, it is not I who have the desi- this desire. It is merely the power of delusion acting through me. I know, I love I that. I really like that. Yeah, I love that. That's a, very, that's a really great line. What would you like? 
Yeah. Uh-huh. No self-definitions. No self-definitions. Not even the one that says... It's, it's, it's very subtle that we think we are serving our spiritual cause when we denigrate ourselves. You know, because we, we think that we're humbling ourselves. We think that we're admitting fault. And there's a very fine line, you see, between admitting fault and identifying, calling ourselves a sinner. So that's where we have to admit that it happened, but not grab onto it so much that it becomes our self-definition. It's a little tricky, but when you get the hang of it, it's pretty good. (laughs) I've struggled with it, so I know that it's not so easy. Okay. Yes, Arthur has another question. Um, What about identifying with the real, actual harm that you've inflicted? And um, there's another thing. The responsibility amongst all that... uh, you know what he says is um, unaffected by karma or the consequences there. Oh, I see. He actually says that because, you see, on, on, if you know that you've caused a mess, I think it's appropriate to go back and try to fix it. It's not like you say, oh, yeah, look at that. I, because of you know, the mood I was in or the delusion I was caught by, I hurt all these people and I messed up all those situations. It's not me who did it. I'll just sail on. There's, that's a little too self-serving, so you may have to go back and make amends. So in that sense, you take responsibility for it. But that's different from feeling yourself pulled down and defined as an awful person. So the consequences of your bad actions are what make you conscious of the fact that they were bad actions, but you're not affected by them. You're not, your own consciousness is not darkened by what happened. It just becomes something that happened and now I have to deal with it and I have to do the appropriate response to it but I don't have to allow my own consciousness to be darkened by it. And I mean, we know what that feels like. You know, we feel guilty, we feel afraid, we feel anxious, we feel ashamed. We don't have to feel any of those things. We just have to go and deal with the mess we made (laughs) and we have to deal with it appropriately. It's not, you can't laugh when you've really hurt people. You have to be genuinely contrite. Um, but there's still, there's another level inside yourself. And it's sort of like you just experiment with it and gradually you kind of find it. You find the place where you can be just perfectly open and honest and quite appropriate in how you respond, but there's just a little piece of you um, that hasn't been sucked down into it. You're just working with it, but you haven't become what you have to deal with. You don't define it as affliction. It's part of the way they put it. Does that make sense? Swami in the Bertolucci lawsuit? Swami in the Bertolucci lawsuit was a very good example of that because it was a really terrible situation, very, very unpleasant, extremely personally demeaning to him, beyond demeaning. It was just outright insulting and, well, god-awful is what it was. And it had to be faced and it had to be done and we all had to go through a great deal. But when it wasn't happening, we didn't have to live in it. And even when it was happening, even when you're standing right in the middle of all these things happening around you, there's always a part of you that can be the hawk. You know, that can just stand that, just that little quarter of an inch away and think, wow, isn't this interesting? Look at what's going on now. When I was in, at one point in that, one of the really terrible lawyers was 
harassing me. I was walking and he was harassing me from behind me. And without really thinking, I just turned and confronted him. And I'm not, I wasn't really that courageous much of the time. And I just really told him off and told him to leave me alone. And afterwards I thought, wow, look what just happened. I was so sort of pleased that that energy had gone through me. And then on other occasions when it would have been appropriate for me to stand and say certain things that never occurred to me to do and I had to stand then in the fact of I really wished I had behaved differently but in that moment a wave of cowardice was, had come over me. And you sort of just watch these things happen and Swamiji, I mean, once in, in that courtroom I, I, don't, I couldn't see it, it's not like I actually had a vision but I could almost see that the room was filled with little demons and they were just running around whispering things in people's ears and swinging from the chandeliers and, you know, there was just evil in the room and it was just happening all around us and, wow, we could really get pulled down by this, couldn't we? Or we could just sit quietly in um, the Spirit of God and watch it happen and just think, how bad can this get? That was basically Swamiji's point of view. He just sort of sat there and wanted to just see how bad this could get. It got real bad. But it wasn't about him. That's the sort of how, you know, he felt like no matter what was being said, they weren't talking about him, even when they were talking about him. They just, he didn't feel they were ever talking about him. They were talking about Swami Kriyananda. Can you sense that? Yeah. Stirred but not shaken, exactly. <laughs> that was the James Bond quote that we used. <laughs> how are you, sir? He had one horrible day. How are you, sir? We said when he came out of there. He said, stirred but not shaken, he said. And then, I mean, there had just been this awful day in court and, it, and he came out of the court because a lot of us couldn't go in for various restrictions placed on lawsuits. And so as soon as he came out, the whole crowd rushed around him. Swamiji, how are you? How was it? And then he, that's when he drew himself up and he said, I am stirred but not shaken, which we all recognize as a James Bond martini. And so like 25 people burst into a gale of laughter. I mean, you know, this was like, just having stepped out of this. And it was perfect. Just perfect. Because then it was, who cares? Well, I don't think they did know what to think. I mean, you know, we had been quite agitated and quite worried and it had been a very bad day. And then all of a sudden we're just laughing our silly heads off. It was like we were crazy. But it was the truth. We were stirred, but we were not shaken. (laughs) Okay. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? No, it's important. Uh-huh. What did you say? Was Swami like that the entire time? No, you he knew had him? ups and downs. He had to fight for his equanimity. Oh, his whole life that I knew him, absolutely. And whenever he manifested anything, um, I mean, you know, there were times when he would be grave. There were times when he was withdrawn. There were times when he was thoughtful. There were times when he had to consider something very seriously and the answer wasn't obvious to him. And sometimes those times would go on for days or even sometimes for weeks where he would just be trying to find the answer to something, whether it was something personal or something external. So he, was, he, didn't, he lived a real life. But I never knew him to... Um, allow it 
to become egoic. It had to be dealt with, but I never, I, I never knew him to allow it to become egoic. He had very deep feelings about things. It wasn't that he didn't feel things. I wrote that once. I said, you know, just because he was very impersonal about himself did not mean that he wasn't deeply sensitive and didn't feel things very deeply. He felt things very deeply, but he always just remained just a little bit impersonal so that he never was overwhelmed. I mean, he, he wept with sadness at different times when, you know, just with the disappointment of the way life turns out and what happens to people and all of that. He, he was very human. So did Master. Yes, yeah, so did Master. He behaved just like Master. But there was always a quality to it. You know, there was just a, an elevated quality to his consciousness. That my experience, I just, I never knew him, even at the worst of times. There was always an elevated vibration there. The consciousness wasn't affected. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's possible. And he manifested it, absolutely. That's why he lived. That's why he, was, he lived such a public life, so that we would have some idea. And that's why so many tough things happen. If nothing tough had ever happened, you would think, you know, what's the proof in that? I mean, he felt that the fire that burned us in 76, the lawsuit which we lost in 98, I mean, th- those things had to happen because if, you, if everything goes right, what's, where's the example? So everything went horrible, just horrible. We were, our reputation was destroyed. We lost a lot of money. We had a verdict, an unfair one, but nonetheless a verdict against us. We were just, you know, the victims of this huge thing and... And to this day, many people think that we're terrible. I was in a... I had to testify in a completely unrelated lawsuit, and the man who was, who was questioning me thought he would unnerve me by bringing up the fact that I'd been in other lawsuits. And so I, you know, stole a march on him. There were two lawsuits. What was the verdict of that? I said, well, one, we were vindicated, and the other, we were deemed morally reprehensible. And he said, pardon me? I said, morally reprehensible. That was the verdict. (laughs) You know, what could he do after that? He was going to build up to this big accusation, and I just took it away from him. (laughs) And, you know, there was kind of a a little bit of laughter in the room, and, and, you know, next. And And he sort of asked me Another question Fool that he was Which allowed me to say Which has made me Very suspicious Of the legal system (laughs) Which you know Just He didn't really have Much ground after that (laughs) So (laughs) You should never They say in court Ask someone a question You don't know the answer to Yes Asha A few moments ago You mentioned that Your impression was That Swami uh, Never um, I don't think you used the word reacted, but egoic. He allowed himself to become egoic. Uh, to become egoic. Uh, the thought that came to my mind immediately, and it may be too simplistic, was does that mean he didn't react emotionally, or is it oh, more no, than he that? had feelings. Um, well, th- you make a distinction between feeling and emotion. I mean, he had very, very deep feelings. I, I had to learn that about him. I thought because he was not egoically involved and was so impersonal that he didn't feel things. And I wasn't as kind to him in the early years as I became in later years because I, I just thought he was not, not he didn't, I thought he didn't experience life. I thought he stood outside of life because, you see, that's how I handled it. The way I tried to be spiritual was, uh, was to be a little barricaded and a little um, withheld. I, I, that's what I thought. And so I, I thought that's what he was doing, but I gradually came to realize he wasn't doing that at all. 
just the opposite. He was completely engaged. He just, I mean, he experienced everything. He experienced, you know, his own feelings about things and he experienced everybody's feelings about things. So the detachment was from a completely different level. He was fearless. Give life your heart, bless everything that's grown. Fear not the loving, all this world's your own. It's a very different picture than I'm detached. You know, he was not detached at all. He was utterly committed, but he was impersonal. He never thought of what was happening as actually affecting him. He wasn't egoically involved in it. It would happen, and it had to be dealt with, and it had to be sorted out, and people suffered, and he suffered for them. And he he suffered for the suffering. I mean, as he put it once, you know, when something really beautiful that you imagine is possible doesn't happen, it's very painful and very disappointing. And that's a way of describing when you have a personal intention, when you hope for something, but to think, oh, nothing ever works out for me, and what am I going to do, and how am I going to deal with this? That's taking it very personally. To say, oh, something so beautiful that I could just see could happen is now not going to happen. And you can even weep with deep feeling over the loss of that, but it still hasn't affected you personally. It's, it's an experience of life. Because that, life, this is a, especially, you know, early Dwapara, it's a, it's a, well, it's a sea of suffering. That's what it is. Get away from my ocean of misery. That's Master Krishna's words. It's an ocean of misery here. It's not without its uh, sweetness. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes things just touch you so deeply you can hardly stand it. I saw, I was, I saw a woman just today. She was, as her, she was a woman of fairly large stature, and she was sitting someplace, and she had two small children on her lap, and she just was dealing with those small children the whole time. And it was very touching, you know, that you could see. I mean, this was motherhood, just motherhood so completely. The two little girls, you know, maybe a year or a year and a half in age apart, and the youngest was maybe two. So, you know, and you, you could just see that this woman, they were, they were nice children and she was a, a very nice woman, but you could see that this woman absolutely poured her heart and soul into those two little girls. Just, where, does that, where does that kind of self-sacrifice come from? You, it was very touching to see. I, you know, I sort of tried to befriend them, and <laughs> it was funny. I was reading this book, and I had my yellow pencil, and I was marking in the book. And one of the little girls says, What are you doing? I said, Well, I'm studying. And <laughs> then I intuited her mother's response. You don't mark in a book unless it's a study book. <laughs> the mother says, Thank <laughs> there I was with just a crayon marking in the book. <laughs> but in the scenes like that, they really... <clears throat> so a mother tending her baby. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Excuse me, I need to cough. I don't want to... <coughs> All right, let's go on. Um, So, number 125, it says, in him, meaning in the divine, in in Ishwara, the supreme self, who is 
unaffected by any affliction, karma, or the consequences thereof, or impression of desires, in him is fully developed the seed of omniscience. And then it says, all things, even the smallest atom, contain that seed. Evolution is the manifestation of consciousness as it expands to reclaim its place of origin and omniscience. He says Darwin's theory of evolution is wrong because it's mechanistic. Patanjali explains why. Because consciousness is manifested in everything, everywhere. Um, and then he, he talks about Darwin just you know talking about how the animals do this and the animals do that and so on. This whole, um, excuse me for just a second, I'm having a little stitch in my side which is distracting me. There, I think it's going away. Um, the uh, Master said that uh, the divine is center everywhere, circumference nowhere, and that every atom has the same potential. It's just so um, very hard for the rational mind at the level at which we live to get our thoughts around it. But to, to realize that if the divine is omniscient and if it's um, um, omnipresent and if every atom of creation has the same seed of potential in it, it's, it's, it's everything in the universe is expanding toward the infinite. And this is how we, this is a key to how we live in this world unaffected. Because instead of seeing events as ends in themselves, see, that's what, that's what makes us so um, concerned. There was a Buddhist monk, I believe, who was asked something about karma and reincarnation and so on. And he gave a very interesting answer. He said, you see all of your lives as separate events. He said, they're not separate events. You know, we have a hard time understanding because we think of it's this one and then this one and then this one. He said, that whole concept is wrong. He said, it's one continuous, seamless flow of energy from one incarnation to the astral world to birth again through that life to death to the astral world. There's no, there's no place where you can cut it apart. Even when that's the question people ask about free will and, you know, so on like that. It's like, if it take any aspect of your life and try to make it stand independently of every other aspect. I, I think of, you know, the, the T-shirt that Tom is wearing quite apart from Swami's statement that it was karmically destined that he would choose that particular shirt out of his closet. But you even think about, how did you get that shirt? Like, where did you buy it? Why did you go to that store? How did you find yourself able to do that? Where did you get the money to do it? Why did you think it would be attractive? Um, you know, what were the seasons that you bought it? Who, who put the store there? Are you dressing the way you dressed in junior high? Are you dressing the way your mother dressed you, the way your wife wants you to dress? How did you meet your wife? Why did you have that as your particular mother? Like, where do you cut it? You can't cut it anywhere. So to try to imagine that I have free will to do this one thing, it's like, where do you cut it? Where did it suddenly become unrelated to all the other threads in the tapestry. And this thought takes it just back even a, a further step that every single atom of creation has that same seed of divinity and it's all pushing toward omnipresence. And so everything that's happening, all of the... I mean, this is where the secret of Swamiji's um, inner resilience or 
you know, inner detachment, if you want to call it that, that no matter what seems to be happening, every atom of creation is on its way to infinity. Every, every particle of your being is on its way to infinity. And whatever you're going through is the road to infinity. When um, I take long, long airplane trips to India... You know, it's like I've been doing this route through Dubai, which is a 16-hour flight from San Francisco to Dubai. It's kind of a loony connection, and I'm not sure I'll do it again. But you get on that plane, you've got 16 hours on the plane. I mean, once I was sitting on the plane, and I, I saw that I could panic. I know how people get nervous about flying, and I, I really am never nervous about flying, or rarely. But I could sort of feel that starting up in me, and I thought, this is just crazy. Just forget it. Because the only way to get to India was through some long airplane flight. And everything was interrelated. And the path to where I wanted to go was through 16 hours on that plane. There was just no other way to get there. Because that's where I'm going. I mean, that's just a very concrete example. But where are we going? We've made the resolution. We've made the resolution to go to the Supreme Soul. And in Him... You know, is this, what does he call it exactly? It's fully developed, the seed of omniscience. And in us is the same seed that is not yet fully developed. But that's that's how we say that everything that happens to us is, is all right. It's not that in and of itself we weren't caught in a riptide of delusion. If we were, we were. But the seed within us, in every atom of our being, all of that is heading toward infinity, and there's just no way we can possibly even get derailed. And this is how, in the midst of it all, the masters just can maintain this equanimity, even in the midst of the tears. Swami Kriyananda describes that when he was expelled from SRF and found himself, after you know the intensity of longing that brought him to be master's disciple, and the in- intensity of relief when he became um, you know, able to serve and to do something worthwhile with his life, that he totally defined in terms of serving master's organization because that's what he understood at that time, and then have it completely ripped away from him. And, he, and, and those he had looked up to as his spiritual superiors had given him extremely stern instructions that would guarantee that he would never have another opportunity to serve Master. Now, you know, in retrospect, from the outside, it all seems like, um, why was it such a big deal? Because it all worked out just fine. But from his side of it, when it happened to him, it was a really big deal. He just didn't know, and he didn't know, you know, whether God had rejected him, whether he'd profoundly displeased his guru. None of those things were clear. And it was many years, really. He molded over repeatedly, over and over again, you know, before he really completely let it go. But he said, as he lay on his bed, staring at the ceiling in the back bedroom of his parents' house, he, he prayed to die. He just didn't know what else to do. Master, just take me. What am I going to do with my life? And then after it sort of all began to open up again, and he said when he went to sing... He, uh, Dr. Chaudhry had him sing and so on like that at the Cultural Integration Fellowship. What people commented on above all was how, how much joy they felt 
when he sang. And Swami writes, joy. He said joy was the last quality that he would have described himself. But then he said, but I had to think that when I went deeper, that even underneath all of that, there was a vibration of joy that was just deeper than everything. And that vibration of joy really is that every atom of creation has the seed of, of omniscience in it and of the infinity in it. And every seed of you is happily and cheerfully on its way to its divine destiny. And no matter how twisted up and swirled up you go, they're just going to keep on going. It's a, it's a really funny picture, isn't it? But it's a true one. I remember a friend once talked about how she'd hit a really low ebb and she said she lay down on her couch, you know, just planning never to get up again. And then she said, it's just really not that easy to lie down and die. <laughs> she said, you get hungry, you get restless. <laughs> I've thought about that a lot of times. It really just isn't. You try to give up, and then after a while, one of those little atoms just starts scooting on its way to infinity, and you're on your way again. <laughs> well, let's take a little... Talk about the, the universe that we know, and how most of it you can't see, and right. only the smallest, smallest amount of it is actually physical, something you could put in a cup. And I thought, well, that could be most of the activities that we engage in right. don't are like that. They just don't mean anything. There's only a very small... Oh, oh no, yeah. it was... You don't actually have to do all that stuff. You just have to stay in the ocean. You have to stay in the ocean of spirit. Yes. Yeah, that, exactly. you know, your analogy of the ocean that you're using right. so much now. Right. And all this other time, there's actually a lot of time <laughs> for... Loving God. We spend so much time walking from here to there. Or with a blank mind. Without being present anywhere. Yeah, not being present. Not being present anywhere. But that's smriti. That's uh, the spiritual path is remembering. It's it's not that you have to create it. You just have to remember that it's there and you have to keep your focus and you have to not get sucked away and just... Let's see, there was a thought there that I wanted to... Pull out. Just give me a second here. Um, no, I'm afraid that it it went away. It was right there on the surface, but now it's lost. But uh, oh, I know what it was. Um, we were with Swamiji. This is a story I haven't put in my book, but we were with Swamiji for a satsang early in the '70s, when the whole community could fit in the living room of the Crystal Hermitage, and very, very, very. In- you know, elevated evening. And Swamiji said at the end of the evening, when you attain God-realization, you look back over all your incarnations, and the only things that, that show are the moments of true divine inspiration. And those have an eternal reality, and everything else was just a dream. And so you, you look back, and none of the rest of it has any... Um, Substance, just like you were saying about the nature of the universe, there's no substance. Um, and the only things that, that really actually happened were the times when you lifted out of that and were in touch with the divine. That's sort of um, what you were saying earlier about reminding us of Swami's story when he went into superconsciousness as a child and went back as a Kriyaban, that no time had passed. 
because everything else that had happened in between was not a, didn't have a lasting reality to it. It was just waves on the sea. But every time he'd really dipped into the sea, then that stayed with us. That was... Uh, I mean, there's so many fascinating implications of that. One moment in the company of a saint will be your raft over the ocean of delusion. That's a, a saying from the Sanatana Dharma. One moment in the company of a saint? Like, what's actually happening? This is the question of personality also. What's actually happening if you're sitting in the presence of a, of a very high soul? Swami, um, my husband David met Ananda Moima. Um, he... He went to India in 1979. I think she died in 1982. By the time we got to India, she was already gone. But he just followed. The, at that point, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. And she would move um, just at her what was called her kale. When she would just feel to move, she would move. So if you went to India and wanted to find her, you had to sort of track her down. You, know, you had to call someone who might know someone who might know someone. And figure out a way to find her. So he did this whole series of things. He can tell the whole story better, which included being on a train and then finally in an oxen cart and just out to some little nowhere place, and there she was, Ananda Moima, and he um, was able to speak to her through a window and spent some time with her. You know, how, how do you, where do you place that? What really happens in those moments? You just have no idea what really happens. But your soul knows. And so Edgar Casey, in his readings, he, was the, he used to go into trance and he would, he would give people all kinds of advice about all kinds of things. And he often also talked about past lives. And many of the people who came to him, he said to them, you were with Jesus. And, and some of the things he said were fascinating. Not that you were a close disciple. You were on the street and Jesus went by. And when he went by, the hem of his garment, you know, passed over your hand. And you have been, that has been the most influential event in your life from that moment till now. That everything else that's happened has actually been defined by that one moment in the company of a saint. Because I guess it just gets all those little atoms all wild up, you know, and they're just going to start going. The whole system starts relating to infinity, and it may take a little while for all the implications to shake down, but sooner or later, I, when we used to go on pilgrimage, and then we'd have to come home, which was always difficult. It was very difficult. The re-entry was always a big, important part of it. I would say to people, you know, you, you don't, tr- don't try to be on pilgrimage when you get home, because it won't work. You'll go home, and everything that you're used to having will come right back on you, it's all been like monkeys in the trees just waiting for you to get back and it'll all just jump on you. Um, but uh, the, the divine experience, and this is the way I've always loved to think of it, is like a little piece of radioactive substance that's just put right into your heart. And just as, as intense radioactivity will gradually mutate your whole system in a negative way, the divine experiences that you have, they lodge in your heart and they just keep radiating this transforming vibration of the infinite. And you, you keep sort of trying to go, you think you're going on in the same way, but that one moment in the company of a saint, wherever it came, is actually what's forcing and moving, making everything happen after that. And when we think of how many divine moments we've had, 
mean, Swamiji is just part of it. We've just had so many divine moments of meditation or music or satsang together. And, I mean, we're, we're, we're greatly transformed and, and we're completely hooked. You know, there's just no way we can get away from it at this point, ever. Isn't that nice? I love that. It's one of the reasons that cheers you up. So what? A friend of mine has a very, 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 very difficult life that he's having to live through. And I was talking to one of his relatives, and I said, oh, it's like a curse. You know, nothing ever seems to go right for this poor man. And she said very sweetly, well, if you'd asked him a choice, did he want an easy life or did he want a challenging one in which he could learn a lot? And the answer was obvious. Of course he would have chosen the challenging one, which he apparently did. So it's just like if you really ask yourself that, and you see that's why, why call it affliction. How is this affliction? Because I get to face and work out some of my karma? What's afflicted about that? It's not easy. It's very difficult to retrain your mind because we're so oriented toward ease. And see, this is, again, talking about Swami, why, how he never got egoically involved he never wanted it to be different than it was. Sometimes he had to ask Divine Mother, why, why is this happening? You know, I, I don't understand. But to say, I don't understand, is when thinking of our Festival of Light. In the Festival of Light, you have to move from the revolt into the quest. And the revolt is when um, the bird, the little bird, declares reality. You know, they told him to do something, but he's just not going to. He's just having a good time doing what he's doing, and he's just going to ignore that good advice. He just, here's the truth, and he's just going to revolt against it. And even though, repeatedly, he lost everything he had, he just clung to that system until finally it was too much. And then he entered the quest. Um, Swami, someone like Swamiji actually you know, is in the state of redemption but then every so often, he would, if he was going to sink at all, it would be into the quest. Divine Mother, why is this happening? I don't understand. And for us, moving out of the revolt into the quest, it's Divine Mother, why is this happening? And that's, that's where we're trying to get, where we might not always be able to accept it without question, but when we question, we question out of a desire to understand it, not out of a desire to repudiate it. And he would, he, Swami never, he never, even when we even do the slightest things, and I can't conjure an example, but I know he's been stern with me on more than one occasion, when in any way I acted as if it shouldn't be that way. Oh, I know what happened when he was very, very ill and something was going on and, I, and there was some little, like kind of tiny little light in the scene and I said, trying to be humorous, thank the Lord for little favors. And Swamiji just repudiated it, even as a joke. You know, I thank God for everything that happens. There was no, you know, just he really would have none of it, not even in his company, and he didn't want any of it for me either. So, yeah. So, any questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Stephen? I, um, I spend a fair amount of time listening to the... Um classes that you've given over the years on the books uh-huh. and you, there's a, a lot of themes that run throughout them and mm-hmm. have and this same one it, it just has struck me because you've said it a number of times and you've really said it again tonight this idea of Swami living in a particular way that seems to be a very good model of not being in opposition to anything mm-hmm. it, it's you know at, at a certain level it's fascinating 
And, and, and to be able to do even a little of that would be a really nice thing. Yeah, even to be able to do a little bit. And now, you have to bear in mind, of course, he exerted tremendous willpower. I mean, when you say not in opposition to anything, it wasn't that being responsible for his life and the duties that he took on, that he never um, had to strive mightily against opposing forces. Even with SRF, he had to fight really very hard because there was such an opposing force. But he he never stood inwardly in opposition to anything that was happening. Yeah, and simply, I mean, completely accepted it as what was meant to be. Yeah, and that there was, it just... It, he didn't define it as affliction. See, it went, it went even a step farther than just not rebelling against it. He, it, it, he never categorized it yeah. as anything, which is, which is going even farther. Well, he was considered a gift. He just didn't... He was lovingly grateful. He said once, in fact, it was in the context of the lawsuit, and this was during one of the times when he was trying to really understand it. He accepted that this is what God was giving him, and then he went away for about a week, I think, to Hawaii, and he came back and he said, it's not enough to accept. I have to actually love what comes to me. Yeah. So it's just like more, more and more refined levels of not standing in opposition to anything. But he called a spade a spade with full force when it was, in fact, a spade. Right. But he didn't oppose the fact that his life was filled with spades. Mm-hmm. You, the subtlety of it is very important because we have to act dynamically. Yeah. Yeah, with his heart. Yeah, no fear. Yeah, the the posture, characteristic posture was, you know, with shoulders back and heart forward, just like that. Just, yeah, it's very, it's quite something. And he just talked to anybody about anything, fearless, exactly, completely without fear. What was there to oppose? You know, you told this other story. I, I just heard it yesterday. It was in the class on Awakened to Superconsciousness about a, a man. I don't know who he was who had been living a very simple life but needed money for something and went and got a job. Mm -hmm. And you said that as it turned out, other people got money for him so he didn't need to continue in the job. Mm -hmm. But he had, it took him a while to give up that role. And it really struck me, it's like how quickly one can move into that sense of identity and lose sight. Yeah, actually that that was a, the man had been living... um, He'd been living in an unfinished building on no money. He, he, was, uh, he was someone that I met really, really early on. This. He was the first genuinely spiritual person I met. He was, just, he was an old beatnik, and he was living out uh, in this unfinished house in Santa Cruz. And he was a genuine um, renunciate type. And he, he, I mean, you know, he, just, he cooked this grain cereal, and he just would do a little bit of work and get a little bit of money. He lived on nothing. Then he read... Um, about Swami Muktananda and felt that Swami Muktananda was his guru in India. And so he decided he had to go to India to see his guru. So he didn't have any money. So he'd been a quite competent person before he took up his life. It wasn't like he... So he went out and got a job. And then actually it was, a, it was a, a, I and a friend who gave him the money. Mm. We had the money and we said, oh, if you want to go to India, we'll just give you the money. And then that's exactly what happened. He'd worked, he'd, you know, he'd found himself a completely new scene. And of course he was working and saving the money, but the scene became an end in itself. And he forgot, you know, what he was doing. And so it took him longer than he was proud to admit. He 
At first he couched it in terms of, I don't want to take the money. But then he realized that he didn't really want to give up the scene that he created. Exactly. And then, of course, he did, and everything went from there. But, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's the riptide. You're just going along, and all of a sudden you're in the riptide. Quite something. You lose incarnations that way. Yeah, you lose incarnations that way. We have lost incarnations that way. Many, many of them. You, you know, from the perspective of life that I'm at now, which is by no means tottering into the grave, but I'm old enough to see how, whoa, a couple of wrong decisions, and whoosh, there goes another one, just like that. They go by really, really fast. Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? We have just this tiny bit of <coughs> one sutra, which is 126, which is the one all about time. And I'm just sort of wanting to see if anything needs to be... I think the only thing... He, he makes reference to the yugas, and I just wanted to sort of give a little bit of just attention to that fact. You know, one of the... Um, there's so many... There's so many aspects to Master's teachings, uh, as, especially as Swamiji has uh, you know, expanded and articulated them, that just satisfy the questions you didn't even know you had. And Swamiji here in the whole subject of time and space just you know, makes reference to the higher and lower ages on this planet and the circular nature of the way time rises and falls. And a, a friend, uh, David Gamow, often answers... Anytime you complain about anything on this planet, he has a very good answer for it. And that answer is, well, this is what it's like on, in early Dwapara Yuga. You know, it's an ascending age, but we're just not there yet. And, and that's that satisfying of that, that in- inclination to revolt. Why can't they get it together? How can people be so greedy? Why are they so stupid? Why can't they understand this? Well... It's what the planet is like in early Dwapara. She's not going to get any better. And why would we stand in opposition to what is? But the, um, the fact of the yugas, there's many really watershed realities, I think, in terms of how this path reorients you completely. And certainly understanding the yugas, understanding where we are in the yuga cycle where we've been in the yuga cycle, what the possibilities of the planet are, just helps to make you very practical in your idealism. Uh, we, we often talk, when we talk about the rules of Ananda, we say people are more important than things, and where there is dharma, there is victory. Those are the two that we usually quote. But the, a third one, which I think is actually equally important, which isn't said as often, is when Swamiji did something or had some thought, Master corrected him by saying, you have to be practical in your idealism. And I found that phrase comes over and over and over again to my mind and is actually the answer to a lot of um, intellectually based conundrums that we get into. If this is true, then that must be true. And if this is what we're supposed to do, that must be what we're supposed to do. But we're not being practical in our idealism. And one of the things that makes Ananda work so well is that Swami is so practical. Um, Narayani, so sweetly, she was just commenting about, on actually, Swami's last hours, last hour. Um, he had, had gone in to meditate, and he'd left the candle burning in the meditation room. And she noticed that. And she said, he never leaves the candle burning. 
because she commented, he's a very practical man. You know, to leave the candle burning would not be safe. And so she was conscious of the fact that he'd left the candle burning, which was, you know, it was kind of the, the small clue that something was not the, not the same as usual. I mean, an hour later, he'd pass from the planet. He was somewhere else. She said every night, you know, he always locks the doors and just, he's a very, she's a very practical man. Well, he was very practical about everything. When an idea was beautiful, but it wasn't really going to work, then you just find another one that will. So much for theory, let's deal with reality. And a lot of times we batter and confuse ourselves because we're not practical in our idealism. And one of the ways people are not practical in their idealism is they have such a false expectation of the potential of this planet. And, you know, I don't know what the highest ages are like, but we're not there yet. And it's a long, and, and we're not going to, you know, we don't just, people have this picture that I'll just cling to earth, you know, I'll just hang out here and then it'll, it'll evolve and I'll evolve. They don't realize that they'll die and reincarnate somewhere else if they don't really belong on this planet in its more evolved state. And in the meantime... It's going to just be at the level of consciousness collectively that it is. And it's, a, you know, a mess. And it's a double mess because you have all this elevated consciousness on one side and you have all this utterly depraved consciousness on the other. That's the transition between Dwapar and Kali. And no matter how much we revolt against it, it's just really where we are. So we have to be practical in our idealism. Given this, what should we do? Well, it is a rising age, and therefore people's consciousness is expanding. There is a, an enormous and an ever-expanding market, so to speak, for elevated thinking. And more than that, it's worthwhile to try to create institutions and traditions and customs and places, because we're going up. I mean, among the many reasons why we have tried to make this building free and clear until we got distracted by making that farm um, is because... This temple will stand here for a really, really long time. This is the kind of building that will stand here for a really long time. And as the age keeps advancing, there'll be more and more of a desire for a place like this. So it's worthwhile for us to do this. By contrast, when uh, it was Kali Yuga descending right after Jesus' life, because it it nadired, if that's a word, at uh, 500 A.D. after Jesus died... So those first centuries after Jesus passed away, it was pointless to try to create anything. I mean, it was pointless to try to sort of go into society and make society different. It was dark getting darker. So they went out. They went and lived in the caves. It was the time of St. Anthony. It was the desert fathers. It was the cloistered convents. It was the monks far away. It was not practical to think that you could actually really make an impact on society because it was dark getting darker. And, you know, at the nadir, just everything was wiped out. But those uh, monks, many of them Irish, were off, and they had the remnant of civilization. That's the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It was way back in the monasteries and the convents that, that um, these higher truths were not destroyed. And that was how you were practical at that time. And so, so Swamiji throws in this cycles of time in the discussion of time so that we can also be realistic in our expectations and be appropriate in our commitments of energy, that these things are worth doing now. You know, we're raising money left and right, as we always do. 
And we're raising money right now, you know, to plant this building forever and also to plant now, as it turns out, a whole other dimension of Ananda in this area because it's worth doing. You know, this one is a a place of protection during um, um, turbulence, but it will also be a place of beauty and upliftment for as long as there's a coastline, as long as the ocean stays within its boundaries and doesn't come too far up. But you see, it's... It's, it's very interesting. Well, what should I do with my life? Well, let me be practical, but let me take into account the whole cycle of what's happening now. That's why we're so passionate about building Ananda. And sometimes people are very cynical. Oh, well, religious institutions, you know, look, nothing ever lasts. Well, this is Dwapara Yuga rising. We don't have any idea. You know, this is a whole different, this is a whole different time, a whole different place. We have to think very differently. That's why he sort of throws it in and why it's worth throwing in. Because even in the context of there is no time, there is no space, there are these shorter cycles of things that we have to pay attention to. So, that's my only comment about that, which actually causes us to finally be someplace consistently, somewhere, which is we will now start on Sutra 127. We've been sort of playing checkerboard for a few weeks here, but now we're there. Okay, any thoughts or comments before we're done? All right, thank you all very much.